Today's scripture is from John 12, one, verses 1 to 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Jesus Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Well, thank you, Allie. Didn't she do a good job? I had her dad do that once, and I'm not kidding, it about killed him. It just about killed him. And so um, I don't ask her, her dad anymore, we ask Allie to do it. So John chapter 12 this morning, um, if you have your blue Bibles, we're going to be uh, on page 750. We're going we're gonna to focus in entirely on the passage that Allie read for you this morning, and, and we're super thankful uh, for her doing that. I ask you to join me in a word of prayer as we get started. God, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the chance that we've had this morning already to worship you, to uh, to dig deeper into it in our Sunday school classes and, and um, for, for all the opportunities that this day will continue to present. Uh, Lord, we just ask your blessing, but we especially pray for this time, Lord. As we unpack John 12, as we go through it, Lord, that you would be the one who teaches, you would be the one who speaks, you would be the one who moves, and that you would get all the glory. And we pray all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever noticed how often two people see the exact same thing and react in totally opposite ways? Uh, this has been a fun weekend for baseball fans in the area as the Chicago Cubs and the St. Louis Cardinals are playing the three-game series at Wrigley Field. And don't, I can see you Cardinals fans, don't worry, I'm going to be on my best behavior today. I'm not going to say anything mean about you, okay? Um, and then the reason I've mentioned that is the announcers always talk about how there's a buzz in the stadium when these two teams play that just isn't the same when others play. And I think that it's not just that these two teams are in the same division or that there have been rivals for decades. It's also how close they are geographically to one another. And so all around the Midwest, you have towns and cities where a lot of the baseball fans are Cardinals fans, and then a lot of the baseball fans are also Cubs fans, which makes total sense because for thousands of years there's been good and evil and darkness. I, now I tried, right? I tried not to say, and by the way, you Reds fans out there, I haven't forgotten you, you're just adorable and you don't matter, okay? Um, but just being so close together, every time they play, right, it doesn't matter what stadium it is, the visiting team always has a lot of fans, and so it's one of those things that's just cool to watch on TV because no matter what happens, there's a good portion of the crowd that's really excited about it, and the other half of the crowd is really not enjoying it at all. And so even though they're watching the exact same game, their reactions to it are totally opposite and different. Now today we're, we're starting John 12, which means that we've covered 11 chapters in the book of John already. I think I, my math is good there. And I hope that you can recall enough to agree that the same sort of thing happened with Jesus. Jesus constantly causes division, right? Because the people who met him, the people who interacted with him, the people who experienced him went in totally opposite directions. And so in John 11, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, it was no different. He performs this amazing miracle. And at the end of that chapter, 
On one hand, you have the Sanhedrin, this Jewish ruling council, and they react to it by going deeper and deeper into darkness and deeper into their hatred of Jesus. See, they've resisted Jesus so many times that their hearts are so cold and their minds are so closed off that they can no longer consider his power or who he might be. They just want him dead, and so they agree to kill him. But for those who had believed in Jesus, those who had already opened themselves up to what he was doing, this miracle with Lazarus was just a confirmation of his power and his goodness. All it did was deepen their trust. It deepened their reliance on him. It it inflamed their enthusiasm for who he was. And so for Mary and Martha, the two sisters of Lazarus who already had a deep affection for Jesus, it only served to ignite their desire to honor him. Because you see, the more that you understand all that Jesus has done for you, the more that you want to honor him. And all they had to do was just open their eyes and look at their brother, who was dead and buried and now is alive again. And every time they saw Lazarus, it was a reminder of the faithfulness and goodness and power of Jesus. Every time they talked to or hugged or or hung out with their brother, it was just a reminder of how awesome Jesus is. And so with all these reminders, they wanted to honor him. And at the start of John 12, they throw a banquet to honor Jesus. Now, if you read through the Gospels, Jesus was invited to a lot of banquets, often by Pharisees. And at those, he was purposely invited to be ridiculed, and they would try to embarrass him there. But this banquet in John 12, Jesus was the guest of honor. This was a night that was designed to celebrate him. It was a night uh, that was designed to thank him. It was a night to respect and revere and worship him. And during the course of this evening, people will experience Jesus again. And through the course of the banquet, two people besides Jesus will stand out, and they will both give everyone there a glimpse into their heart and showcase what it is they really worship. So look with me at John chapter 12 in verse 1. Right to start where Ali read for you. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And here dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining the table with him. Then, those reclined, then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So what happens here is John immediately establishes a timeline for us. Right? He says this is six days before the Passover. You might think, well, what, is, what does that mean? This is not just any Passover. Because in the Passover, six days from now, right when the Passover lamb was to be slain, Jesus will die on the cross. And John will make sure his readers know that that is not coincidental timing. And so this means, right, at the start of John 12, this means this is the last week of Jesus' life before the cross. He will literally die in a matter of days. And so I want you to see this banquet is no normal dinner. So reclining at the table is Jesus, who is literally God in the flesh, and sitting near him or next to him is Lazarus, who is a guy that Jesus brought back from the dead, and they're sharing a meal together. And I love that John includes that detail for us because it validates Jesus' power and miracle. He didn't bring back a spirit. Lazarus is not some sort of ghost. He's He's not a shell of his former self. Lazarus has been physically resurrected, and so he's hungry, and he's thirsty, and he needs to eat, and he needs to drink just like the rest of them. In fact, if you read through the Gospels, you notice this trend in the Bible. Um, Jairus' daughter, the little girl that Jesus raised from the dead, the first thing Jesus does is ask her parents to get her something to eat. Lazarus, we're told here, is eating at this dinner. Towards the end of John, we're going to see Jesus eating breakfast with his disciples after his resurrection. All of these resurrected people, we're told in the Bible, that we, we see them eating. And it's not that death makes you hungry. Well, I don't know, maybe it does. I've never experienced it myself, right? 
But it's just that the writers of the gospel are making sure you know that their resurrections were legit and literal. And so already, just by who's there, right, just by who's at this table, we know this is a more interesting dinner party than you've ever been to. And then it gets even more interesting. Martha's serving people. It's who she is. It's what she does. But consistently throughout the gospels, we find her sister Mary in one place. Luke chapter 10 tells us of another banquet that Martha and Mary had for Jesus' disciples. And in verse 38, we're told this. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. In verse 39, she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. So we're told there in Luke 10 that earlier Martha had hosted Jesus and his disciples at her house. And while Martha was running around everywhere trying to, get, trying to get the dinner ready, we find Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, hanging on his every word. Now look back with me in your Bibles. One chapter from John chapter 12 to John chapter 11. This is at one of Mary's lowest points of her entire life. Her brother had died and Jesus seemingly did nothing at all to help. And so Mary has questions for Jesus. Look what we're told in John 11 verse 32. It said, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So I want you to, I want you to see this. In Luke 10, she was seeking. She was learning. She was admiring, right? In John 11, she's in despair and she's grieving and she's questioning. And now here in John 12, she's celebrating and she's honoring and she's worshiping. But you see, for Mary, it didn't matter what she was experiencing, it didn't matter what season of life she was in. It didn't matter what emotions were pulsating through her, through her soul. There was only one place that she wanted to be. There was only one place that she felt home and secure. There was only one place that she felt safe and she could be her truly herself. And that was at the feet of Jesus Christ. And so the scene here in John 12 is a, is a public scene. But for Mary, her only focus is on Jesus. And at some point during the evening, Mary comes in and she falls at Jesus' feet once more. And she takes a pint. It's about a half a liter of pure nard, John tells us. Now this was an oil that was prepared from the roots and stems of an herb that's, that's located in northern India. It had a very pleasant but very strong smell. And so in ancient times, it was used as a perfume. It only took a couple drops. And given the distance that it had to travel, given how strong it was, given how rare it was, given how desired it was, this was incredibly expensive. And at every banquet in those days, a servant was to go around and wash people's feet before dinner. Because travel in that day was, was by one way, was by foot. And we're not talking about strapping on your Nikes and walking on paved sidewalks. Right? They had sketchy sandals and walked on dirt all day long and they shared the same paths with animals. And so your feet would be filthy by the end of the day. Which is why foot washing is so important because they didn't sit at tables. They reclined. Right? Tables at the time of Jesus in that area of the world were actually very low. And so instead of sitting on a chair at a raised table, they would actually lay down and recline against cushions on a floor. And, 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 and being as inflexible as I am, that sounds awful to me. I never want to eat that way, right? But they were used to it. And what this meant was that their dirty, stank-covered feet were right there by the table. And so before the food could come out, a servant would have to come with, a wa with water and a towel. And so Mary approaches Jesus. And she's going to wash his feet. Only she doesn't bring water with her. And she's not carrying a towel. Because in her mind, those aren't good enough for Jesus. And she takes this really expensive oil, and you, you, and you wonder, right? You wonder if at an earlier point in her life, this oil carried more value to her than it does this evening. 
You wonder if she used to find just a part of her identity in having such a prized possession. You wonder if this, early in life, this would have been her chief prized possession, but it doesn't matter anymore to her. Because she doesn't just put a few drops on Jesus' feet. She pours the whole jar out. She empties the entire thing. And then she lets her hair down, which culturally was incredibly frowned upon. But it should have been clear to everyone in that room by this point that Mary didn't care what others thought of her. Her sole focus was on honoring Jesus. And in this amazing act of humility and surrender, she dries and cleans his feet, not with a towel, but with her own hair. And this act of love, right, this act of service brought this banquet to a screeching halt because everyone could see what she's doing. And so just the uniqueness of it, just the boldness, the lack of concern for culture expectations, the depth of worship, this was an act by Mary that would have captured the attention of everyone in the room. And John, being one of Jesus' disciples, was there. And have you ever noticed how your senses can trigger memories? Right? You can see something or, or hear something or taste something or smell something, and immediately your brain will be taken back to this previous event in your life that you remember. Well, for John, as he remembered this night, and he wrote about it years later in the book, what, what stood out to him was the smell. He even makes note of it. It was the aroma, the pleasant fragrance that filled the entire house, he says. You know, I'm guessing that for the rest of his life, whenever he passed a woman that was wearing that oil as a perfume or passed a merchant that was selling it, his mind went back to that night in Bethany and how the whole house was filled with the aroma of Mary's worship. And at this point, man, you, everything is finally perfect. I mean, finally, Jesus is being honored. Finally, he's being given the due that's, that, 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 that he deserves. And, and who better to do it, right, than Martha and Mary, his close friends and the sisters of, of the man he raised from the dead. And there at the table, also being a witness, is Lazarus, the dead man that he brought back to life. And you have this amazing picture of humility and worship by Mary. How could this ever be ruined? Who could ever turn this into a negative? Well, insert Judas. Look at verse 4. But one of his disciples, the but there is not good, okay? But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. First of all, how about that? Anybody want to just bring a year's wages and set it up here today? We'll use it. No? Okay. All right. But Judas, Judas had sat back and watched all that play out. He sat back and saw everything that everyone else saw, only Judas isn't taken by it. Right? The fragrance, the beauty, the devotion, it just doesn't land on his radar. Because what he sees is waste. Mary just poured out enough oil that it was worth a year's salary. And for what? For nothing in Judas's mind. Right? She poured out a year's wages in his mind to do what water could have done for free. So he's not moved by this. He's offended. This is stupid in his mind. And then he goes to that card that you play when you want to get really popular, right? You want everybody to agree with your opinion because it doesn't look good to value money more than honoring Jesus. So he plays the card that's going to land the most guilt. Couldn't that have been sold and the money used for the poor? Right? Because who's going to disagree with that? I mean, if you're going to get Jesus on your side, play the poor card. It's almost guaranteed to work. But, but look at what Jesus says in verse 7. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. And so Jesus sticks up for Mary. 
And he does so for two reasons, and they're both in his words. He points out that Mary is preparing his body for burial. Now you must know that the Jews had many rituals that they were to go through to prepare a body for burial. This included spices and oils and herbs, right? And so when Jesus is on the cross, we can assume, we can only assume that Mary and Martha weren't there because we aren't told they were there. So maybe they were coming to Jerusalem the next day for the Passover, but they weren't there on, on the Good Friday. And so the women who were there, the women who were able to follow Jesus' body at the cross, had almost no time at all to prepare his body for burial because the Passover was starting. Which is why the first people to discover the empty tomb was women. It's on Sunday morning, the women were the first to the tomb early in the morning because they were going there to finish preparing his body for burial. And what Jesus is saying here is that he's allowing Mary to do this. God has actually led Mary to do this because Jesus knows there's going to be no time for this later. That Mary's actually stepping in and filling that gap. And secondly, Jesus says, he uses this line, you'll always have the poor among you. Now that can sound really insensitive, can't it? But it's not how Jesus meant it. Here's what he's not saying there. He's not saying there's always going to be poor people, so don't help them. Right, that goes against... That goes directly against everything he else he ever taught. What he is saying is this. He's saying that in serving Jesus, you don't have to choose one good at the loss of another good. And in this life, the opportunity to love on and serve and care for those less fortunate will always be there. It's always available to you. But the opportunity to honor Jesus was fleeting. At the end of that very week, he was going to die on a cross. And after the resurrection, he would ascend to heaven. So this was Mary's time. In fact, it very well may be the last time she saw Jesus on this earth. But what's interesting to me is like we talked about in the beginning, that there are two people in the same room experiencing the same thing, and they see it totally opposite. For Mary, this is an act of devotion. This is an act of honor and respect and worship. For Judas, this is just waste. It's unnecessary extravagance. It's, it's kind of showy. And what I want to ask this morning is this. How could they view the exact same thing in totally dramatically different ways? We see it's not just what we see, is it? It's how we perceive what we see. And our perception of everything that we see is funneled through our heart. Here's what I mean by this. Proverbs chapter 4 to verse 23 says this. Above all else. Now I want you to hear that phrase. Above all else. Guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. That verse tells us that your heart carries significant power. Right? That what our heart is set on will determine the course of our life. It will influence how we see things. It will sway our decisions. It will actually lead us. And everything that we do flows from what our heart belongs to. Which is why Solomon is warning his son. It's why Solomon is warning his readers in that verse. Guard your heart above everything else. If you don't do anything else in this life, you guard your heart. Because if you give your heart to too much of the wrong thing, you get, that will have major ramifications in your life. And so Solomon writes Proverbs 4, above all else, protect and guard. Keep your heart from the wrong things. And what we see in John 12 is two people whose heart belong to two different things. For Mary, it's abundantly clear. Right? Throughout the Gospels, we see that her heart belonged to Jesus. She was always at his feet. It's where she was. In times that were normal, in times that were dark and difficult, in times that were joyous, when she wanted to learn and say nothing at all, when she had questions and doubts, when she wanted to express love and devotion, she went to where her heart belonged. 
And because Jesus was at the center of her life, because he owned her heart, she got to experience a growing depth of joy in relationship. And she is right now in heaven doing what she longed to do while on this earth, only now she gets to do it for all eternity. And she remains at his feet. She remains in worship. She remains with Jesus. And Judas? Well, John tells us. Look at verse 5 again. This was Judas' objection. Verse 5. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Now listen, listen to verse 6. This is taking somebody out. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money back, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now you read that and your first thought is, man, John, tell me how you really feel, right? But what I want you to realize this morning is this. John wrote verse 6 looking back. He wrote verse 6 with the full knowledge of how this story played out and everything that happened in Judas' life. In John 12, during John 12, on this night, everyone in that room thought Judas was legit. In fact, in the other Gospels, we're told of Mary's act and Judas's criticism. And what we're told in those that John leaves out is that the rest of the disciples joined in and agreed with him. And the reason they did is because there's nothing at this point to cause anyone to think that Judas isn't all in with Jesus. I mean, think about what's happened up to John 12. G- Judas was chosen by Jesus as a disciple. He has traveled everywhere with Jesus, learning all the same things the rest of them have learned. He was sent out by Jesus in pairs, first in the 72 and then in the 12, to do ministry in the name of Jesus. And he actually performed miracles in Jesus' name. He served Jesus and the disciples as the treasurer, keeping track of their resources. Judas was one of them. There's no denying it. And everyone thought Judas was legit, including Judas. But what we're given a glimpse of here is this, that his heart did not belong to Jesus. You see, you might try to serve Jesus. You can look the part of his follower. You can, do, you can even do really cool things for him or even his name. But it's why Proverbs says, above all else, guard your heart. It's why Jesus said in Matthew 6 that when push comes to sub, you actually can't serve two masters. That there will be one king of your heart. There's one thing or one person who owns you. And when push comes to shove, you will follow what owns you. And yeah, Judas looked the part and he played the part. And he did more impressive things for Jesus' kingdom than you or I maybe ever have. But Jesus didn't own his heart. Because all along, Judas had his own shadow mission. That even, even while in the presence of God, there was something else he was worshiping. And it started small, sure, but that's... That's how it always starts. Maybe, maybe one day he just took too long a look into the treasury bag and he thought about what he could do with all of those resources. Maybe he just wanted a more comfortable life. Like maybe, maybe deep down he, he knew that it had kind of always been about him. But whatever the reason, one day he just, he just took a little bit of the money that people had given to feed and care for Jesus and disciples and he put it in his own pocket. And it might have been hard on that day, but the second time he did it, it got a little bit easier. And then it got easier and easier and easier after that until he's in this room in John 12 and he didn't even know what that had done to him. But what it had done to him is as he saw Mary come in and wash Jesus' feet, he didn't even notice the culture expectations she was denying. He wasn't moved by her act of devotion. He wasn't impressed by her sacrifice. He only saw one thing and that's money. Because money owned him. And five days later, Judas will commit an act that will forever leave his name in infamy. Do you know nobody names their child Judas anymore? 
His name is now synonymous with evil and betrayal because five days after this banquet, he will lead the temple guard in the Sanhedrin to the Garden of Gethsemane, taking them right to where Jesus is so they can arrest and kill him. And why did he do this? Why did Jesus, why did Judas, what was Judas's big reward for turning on Jesus and all his friends like this? Well, the Sanhedrin offered him the very perfect thing. They offered him what his heart belonged to. And for 30 pieces of silver, he betrayed the Son of God. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Mary's story ends with glory. Judas's with shame and damnation. And it's at this point, right, that we need to understand that the principles of this story impact our lives today. And here's how. Something owns your heart this morning. This is unavoidable. Something controls you more than you've even realized. And what you need, what those around you in close proximity to you need, what this church needs, what this world needs, is for you to be captivated and owned by Jesus. And if I could just address the men for a couple seconds, because I know what this language sounds like. When I say phrases like, your heart needs to belong to Jesus, I know that phrase sounds a little hallmarky, right? And what I'm not telling you is I need to go around and pour perfume on people. Right, that's what it looked like for Mary. What I am telling you is that what it will look like for you is different. And what I'm telling you is that Jesus needs to be the most important thing in your life. Because when he's the most important thing in your life, that frees you up to make a much bigger difference and impact with your life than anything else does. And because this is what you were made for. This matters for two different reasons. And the first is personal. It's for you. That having Jesus Christ at the center of your life gives you the best life possible. Jesus called it the most abundant, fulfilled life. We were made, we were created by God to worship, and so we will worship something. You worship something today, but when we worship, when we give our devotion to something other than Jesus, that always eventually hurts us and those around us. It's simply not worth the cost. Judas thought, Judas thought all along that he could be on team Jesus and worship something else, but eventually you lose that game. And what's best for you, what's best for your life, what's best for your soul is for you to completely surrender your life to Jesus Christ where he owns you. This is why the New Testament writers call themselves slaves of Jesus. This is giving him control of your time. This is surrendering to him control of your finances and your decisions. This is giving him control of your marriage and your relationships. This is giving him control of your family and your home and your calendar and your schedule. This is using the things that you're good at. This is using your gifts and your talents and your possessions and your resources to spread his kingdom and bring fame to his name. And not just for your own personal gain. And what I'm telling you this morning is that you need this. God, I want you to hear this. God has zero desire to be a priority in your life. He doesn't want to be something that you do or check off. No matter how often, right? He doesn't want you to give him God time in the morning or God time on Sunday mornings and then you go about the rest of your life not really even thinking about him. What he wants is he wants to be at the center of who you are and everything that you do. He has designed you for this very purpose. Jesus was a priority in Judas' life. Right? Jesus was a big part of Judas' life, but he was not the center. Jesus was at the very center of Mary's life. Her identity was in him. Her focus and passion and dedication was to him. You need this. You need Jesus to own you. It is for your good. Secondly, it's for the good of others. 
for the good of those around you, right? We talk a lot in churches and in Christian circles about discipling people. You know, discipling is not actually a word. Churches just made it up. Right, this, this comes from our command in, from Jesus in Matthew 28 that we are to go and make disciples of every nation. The disciple is more than a believer, much more. A disciple learns, a disciple grows and follows, a disciple surrenders control over to Jesus. And so we talk often in churches about this need for all followers of Christ to be discipling those new believers. Right, that there should be people in your life who aren't as far along you in, the, as, in their walk with Jesus as you are. That you need to teach them what you know. You need to show them how to read the Bible and pray. You need to help them understand what God's word says about different things. You need to be training others in following Jesus. But the truth is, no matter how often we talk about this, no matter how often we tell people they need to be doing this, the truth of the matter is that you actually are discipling others. Because you cannot avoid this. The question is, what are you discipling them in? Because there is something in your life that you're most excited about. There is something that owns your heart. There's something that you research online. There's something that you give a large amount of time to. There's something you give a large amount of money to or both. There's something that those who know you can quickly identify. Well, that, that's really important to them. Because you disciple others constantly about what is most important to you. And so when people around you do they hear all about your political stances? Do they know all about your favorite sports team? Do they know how much you like working out or nutrition? Do they know how big a deer you shot or fish you caught or your score in the golf course? Do they know what Jesus has done for you? Do they know what he could do in their life? Do they know how big a difference he's made in your life? How he saved your soul and given you eternal life? The question is, what owns you? What dominates your thoughts? What, what consumes your conversations and experiences? What do you think about when, you're, when you have free time and you're all alone? What do you invest your time and your money and resources into? This is not the calling of missionaries. It's not the calling of pastors or elders. This is the calling on all who've been rescued by Jesus. And when your heart is captivated by Jesus, when he owns you, you make a huge difference in this life, no matter who you are or what you do great example of this is Larry Teal. Right, Larry Teal is a name that none of you know. Larry Teal was a janitor and a bus driver at Cloverdale Community Schools. As younger days, Larry became addicted to, in his own words, pretty much every drug mankind has been able to come up with. And so through his 20s, he lived this incredibly destructive and hard life. And one day, when he hit rock bottom, Jesus broke through and he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. And he was so addicted that even after that, it took a year of immense therapy and prayer to break free from those chains. And going on in his life, a man with his past transgressions and criminal record wasn't given a lot of career opportunities. And so he decided he was just going to trust the Lord and take work wherever he could get it. And he eventually ended up at Cloverdale Schools as a janitor and bus driver. And I met Larry during my fifth grade year. He's my bus driver that year. And what struck me, even at a young age, was his joy for life and how that flowed out of him and he just made everyone's day better by being around him my favorite story of this is, is it occurred on the last day of fifth grade he told us all week up leading to the last day of school that on the last day when we were to get on the bus we're supposed to bring the biggest water gun we could find and have it filled to the rim and then he stored them on the bus while we went to school and then when we got on the bus after school what we found were just buckets full of water balloons and so we, we still didn't know what was going on. He hadn't told us. And so we pull away from the school. We go a couple of miles. He pulls off on a side street. And he stands up and he puts on some goggles. 
And Larry says, guys, I want you to know this. These are really special goggles, right? When I put these on, I can't see anything you guys are doing. So I can't, I would never know if you decided to have a water fight. He says, so I'm just going to turn around, I'm going to sit down, and you guys do whatever feels right to you. Right? And we had the world's biggest water fight right there in the bus, right? And at, afterwards, after the route was over, Larry took the bus back and cleaned it up all by himself. Right? Every single year, my dad would invite Larry to speak to our FCA group or Fellowship of Christian Athletes group. And every year, Larry would give the same talk. He'd just share his testimony and invite others to give their life to Jesus. My senior year, during fifth hour, I worked as an office assistant because I didn't want to take a class because it was senior year and I was already mailing it in. Um, but during that hour, I would always have to go make copies at the same time every day. And Larry would be cleaning the hallway that went right by the copier room at the same time every day. And so our paths would always cross. And he would always stop what he was doing. And he would ask me to come with him. And we'd go to the soda machine and he'd buy me a drink. And we would take what he loved to call a pause for the cause. And during this, he would ask me, he would just ask me point blank, what kind of witness are you being today? If people, if people had to see Jesus through you today, what, what, what kind of picture are you showing them? He'd ask me, what, what is it, who is it that you're praying for? Who is it that you've told about Jesus today? Do you, know, do you know how beneficial that is for a teenage boy to be reminded of what he was on this earth for? You know how quickly teenage boys get distracted from what really matters? The pause for the cause. When I think of Larry T., I think of someone who Jesus was the center of his life. And he wasn't a preacher, and he didn't speak to thousands, and he didn't travel to China. He was a bus driver and a janitor, and his impact for Jesus carries on to this day, and it will for all eternity. You need Jesus Christ to be the center of your life. Everyone else around you needs Jesus Christ to be the center of your life, whether they know it or not. And when that is in place, there's just no telling what God will do with you. There's just no telling what God might do in you. There's no telling what God will do through you. And if you've never given your life to Jesus, you have to start here today. If you've never given your life to Jesus, you have to believe in him because he can't be at the center of your life unless you believed in him. But man, I need to talk to you who have believed in him, but you know right now that there's something else that owns you. I want to talk to those in this room who, who are trying to be on team Jesus, but deep down you know you're worshiping something else. And what I want to tell you this morning is that you need to take that very seriously. The story of Judas shows us that this is no laughing matter. Judas was a man who tried to have it both ways. He tried to play the part, he tried to look the part, he tried to believe that he was legit, but all along his heart belonged to something else. If that's you this morning, you're playing the church game, you, you would say right, that you believe in Jesus, but you know, you know that something else is more important to you. And then you need to repent of that. You need to ask him for forgiveness. You need to give your heart totally to him and ask the Lord to squash that idol in your life, no matter how good a thing it seemingly is. And when you do, you need to be prepared to make the necessary changes to elevate your relationship with Jesus higher than whatever that thing is. And you need to do it before that lesser, weaker, more pathetic God causes ruin to you and those around you. And you need to do it because you and everyone else will be better off when you become who you were created to be. And so above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Let's pray.
God, I'm thankful, Lord, for the, that you included in your word the story of Mary and Judas. God, two people who are on seemingly the same path, two people who are following after Jesus, two people who had claimed belief in him, two people who were learning from him, two people who had traveled with him, two people whose, whose life trajectory seemed to be on the same path, but they were heading totally opposite different directions. And God, what made all the difference in the world was what their heart belonged to. And so, Lord, as always, we know this is hugely important. We pray for any in this room who've, who've never believed in Jesus, who've never even taken the step to trust him and his death for salvation, forgiveness of sins. We pray that they would do that this morning. But God, given the text this morning, I really want to pray for the individual or people in this room who are trying to have it both ways. Who think that somehow they can claim the name of Jesus and live for something else. Somehow they can play the church game and look the part and their heart belongs to something else and that it will all somehow work out. God, remove them of that lie this morning. Break them of their idolatry. May they repent of that sin and leave that to you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name.